as much as you know my man i'm not there or, or whatever it is I, i'm just i cannot get rid of this feeling you know it's, you just you lack the will to to exist you, you know to get up and, and go for a walk to feed yourself it's just you just don't have the will to do it you and I know how difficult it was um, coming here, being alone. Don't, don't think about me, someone will come and stay with me. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh anyone and everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm Robbie Hamza. This is The Talk. Uh, I've got a beautiful guest today. We've got a beautiful guest today, uh, all the way from Leicester in the UK, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim bin Mohammed. Uh, Imam Jazakallah khair for joining us. Thank you very much. You've, you've come a very long way. How was, you, how was your trip here? Uh, the flight was quite um, difficult. Um, landed in Melbourne first, it was a 13 hour flight from Dubai to uh, Melbourne. It's a long time to sit it on is, a plane. It is. Um, it took about four or five days just to adjust to the times. Subhanallah. Um, the first time we went to sleep around uh, the first day after Isha around half seven. I woke about two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you just wake up like you the sun should be up. And, um, but it's not. Subhanallah. And it was still like, it's like, it's still like five, six p.m. in the UK. So we were still, you know, based on that times. And you brought your family. How did the kids go on the, on the plane? Um, yeah, they, they had a nice time. You, know, you got a one-year-old, you yeah, said? I've got a one-year-old as well, alhamdulillah. SubhanAllah. And, That's, um, that must be like quite an anxious feeling after the little one starts to settle because everyone on yeah, the plane. Yeah, but alhamdulillah, she, she was really good on the plane. Um, she slept a good few hours and then, you know, she was playing. And so alhamdulillah. MashaAllah. Had a lovely time on the plane as well. Now, Sheikh, I know you, um, you've, you've done a lot of extensive study for the, for the people joining us. Can you tell us a bit about your studies? Well, and first of all, before we get into what you actually did, what made you decide to get into the business of deen in the first place? Um, Alhamdulillah, my, my father, Rahimahullah, he passed away in 2013. He was an imam, one of the senior imams and ulama of Leicester. Okay. Um, so that was quite in the family tradition. And um, because he was imam of the local masjid, we would, quite, would accompany him regularly to the masjid for salah. Mm. Uh, he was the head of the madrasa there also. So it was quite, it, it was just... You know, routine for us to go with him to the masjid. We were enrolled in the madrasa at a young age, five, six years old. Um, Big family? We have, alhamdulillah, we're 11 brothers and sisters. What? Mashallah, wow, that's alhamdulillah. That's uh, amazing. And um, all six brothers, alhamdulillah, hafiz of the Quran. Really? Alhamdulillah. Wow, mashallah. And all, well, 10 of us, alhamdulillah, have studied the Alimiya program. Really? Yes. Man, that um, is like... Wow, like if you're a parent, <laughs> really, like you've got to be pretty uh, happy, alhamdulillah. I mean, I mean my parents, Tarbiya, you know, uh, Allah reward them immensely. Allah reward them immensely for everything they did. Were your parents born in the UK? or no, the, uh, Where did they come from? They, they came from India, in Gujarat. Okay. Um, and my father came in 1972 yeah. um, as an imam in Masjid al in Leicester. And he met your mother in India? or Yes. Okay, so, so they, they married, came together. My mother came two years later. Okay. So my father was alone in the UK for two years, yeah. and then my mother came with my elder two brothers um, in 1974. Um, and you know, I, I always try and picture because I, I I've travelled now with three young children. Mm. Um, Can you imagine doing it with eleven? And what I'm what I'm really trying to understand that how did my mother do it not being able to speak English back in 1974 wow. with all the challenges? I mean, at that time. Very few people within the village had ever travelled, let alone abroad, that had never travelled out of the state. Mm. 
So at the state of Gujarat, they'd never travel out of there. What made them decide to relocate to the UK? How did that happen? So you know? what actually happened was there was a masjid in Leicester, Masjid An-Nur. And um, the masjid had been running for several years, but they wanted a scholar, an imam to take charge of the place. Mm-hmm. Um, now, because they had some, uh, they were in communication with one of the madaris in India, one of the Darul Ulooms. So they wrote to the madrasa in India that, is there anybody you can send? Now, um, the, the head teacher of the madrasa, the principal, he, um, he was, my father was very close to him. Mm-hmm. So he, my father was actually an imam another, in another town. So my father wrote back to the masjid in Leicester that sent an invitation to, to this imam. Mm-hmm. And so they sent an invitation to my father. And my father, rahimullah, as soon as he received the letter, he went back to his teacher and said, I've, I've got an invitation from my masjid in Leicester. So his teacher uh-huh. said, I know. I'm the one that told them to send it <laughs> Subhanallah. And, and then he said, and I also knew that you would come to me first before making a decision. So Mashallah. my father, rahimullah, would always, you know, take mashwara and, you know, um, advice from his teacher. So his teacher actually said, I knew you'd come to me first wow. before, take, before taking the decision. Wow. So alhamdulillah, then, you know, he encouraged my father that, look, you know, they, they need the khidmah of deen there. And, I, you know, I really suggest that you go. So alhamdulillah, my father, he took that decision, leaving my mother and my elder two brothers in India. Wow. And I, I, it's not easy. It's not a light it's decision it's to make. It's not. It's not. Um, and I, I, I came here in 2018 for one month. I was in Sydney for Taraweeh during the month of Ramadan. And I know how difficult it was mm. um, coming here, being alone. Um, although, again, I could speak English and, you know, it's a Western country. So there was not much difference in terms of culture between the UK and um, Australia. And my wife and my children were there with their family. Mm. But then to think for my father to come here in something completely unknown for two years. No FaceTime. No, noth- nothing at all. Mm. And subhanAllah, you know, the, 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 the challenges that they went through and, you know, the sacrifice that they gave. Mm. And it's because of that where we are today. MashaAllah. So what, a, what a testimony to your mother as well. I mean, you think, I guess today, I mean, if you were to, you know, want to go fishing with the boys for a week or something, you know, I think a lot of wives would get upset or, you know, would, would mm. miss their husband if you had to go away for a week or two. But to contemplate, okay, all right, I'm going to, we're going to make this decision as a family. I'm going to let you go for two years for sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Definitely. and to support that. Because, I mean, without her support or without her, I guess, blessing, so to speak, that would have been an even more uh, difficult task. You know, I, I've seen this throughout my life from my mother that she's always encouraged the khidmah of deen in any way, shape, or form. MashaAllah, wow. Um, and I recall back in 2013, my father passed away in the month of Ramadan. Um, he had a heart attack three days before Ramadan. And um, the fourth of Ramadan, he passed away. It was a Friday night. On a Friday as uh, well. On a Friday night, alhamdulillah. Wow. Um, in the month of Ramadan. Wow. Um, oh, I got goosebumps. So, wow. And that itself, subhanAllah, you know, has some amazing stories during the, the you know, uh, when he was on his deathbed and certain things had happened but in any case um, about three weeks after that one of my senior teachers Sheikh Adam Hafizahullah out of the blue he said to me have you performed Hajj? so I said I haven't she said go for Hajj this year now this was three weeks after my father had passed away mm-hmm. um, I was living at home with my mother me my wife and uh, well it was just me and my wife at the time and my younger sister 
and my mother was in Iddah and my other brother who was living next door he had already decided to go for Hajj that year so after my teacher advised me to go for Hajj I said inshallah I'll make the intention I thought to myself let me do mashwara with my mother first because I'm living at home with her, my father's just passed away, very emotional time, she's in Iddah, someone will need to stay with her. So I went home and I said, you know, I've been advised to go for Hajj. Immediately without thinking, she said, go. Don't don't think about me, someone will come and stay with me. And Alhamdulillah, you know that encouragement that she's continuously given. SubhanAllah. I remember several years ago, maybe about 2005, 2006, my grandparents from India had come to visit and um, it was it was a summer month so we had mangoes at home so what I did was uh, we were all in the front room we had the mangoes and then I thought to myself it's going to be difficult for him to go to the kitchen and wash his hands so I went and bought some water for him and my sisters were there also so I washed all of their hands and you know the sister said oh Jazakallah so much you know Allah give you a beautiful wife and my mother immediately said make dua that Allah give him ilm Mm. And I thought to myself, Subhanallah, this is this is a difference between a mother and you know other people. Mothers they think of Deen, mm-hmm. they think of the Akhirah, and that's a dua that my mother gave to me at that time also. Wow! That you know Allah Subhanahu wa Taala give him ilm, and you know I, I just pray that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala keep me in the shade of my mother for a lengthy time. Amen. And allow me to do her khidmah also. I mean, what an amazing woman. So, alhamdulillah. What um, a blessing for you. You know, I think, um, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, being in the UK, you see uh, a lot, and we see a lot here. And I work in a space with um, a lot of kids that are quite neglected. Um, you've sort of got to dig to realize that. Um, sometimes, you know, you meet them in when they're in the juvenile justice system, mm. they come out of that and into prison, or whatever the case may be. And um, you just, uh, the things I guess we've taken for granted, I have a very loving mother as well, alhamdulillah, who's always encouraged the best for me and in me. Um, and I think, yeah, it's easy to take for granted that we've just got that. But, you know, I mean, I, I see kids who are just literally, they're a nuisance to their parents. I was at a youth barbecue <coughs> down the road on Wednesday. Um, and kids 10, 11 years old out there smoking, giving drugs to each other, all the rest of it, mm. you know, and you can see they're very, very badly looked after. So, I mean, subhanAllah, how grateful are we, how grateful are you to have that start to life, you know, and to this make this all possible. This is something that um, we had discussed yesterday as well in the meeting and um, in the afternoon, um, I actually read your report um, in the MCB, is it? MCF. MCF, yeah. that's the one. Um, so um, Ismail's father, he gave me the, uh, the, the magazine. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so I read your report and one of the, um, one of the comments you had made was, you know, it's quite, quite remarkable that you used to always address the youth first and then you realize that it's a family, the youth are coming from broken families. Broken kids come from broken homes, yeah. Exactly, and, mm-hmm. so, and that's what we really need to address first. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that, you know, we were discussing yesterday also. The importance of having workshop for parents mm. on tarbiyah, because um, one of the ulama was saying, uh, one of the school teachers, um, uh, so he was saying how 
you know, repeatedly parents will come, mothers will come, fathers will come and say, oh, can you explain this to my child? He's messing around at home, he's not doing this, he's not doing this. Mm -hmm. The question is, why aren't the parents addressing the issue? Yeah. Why, ha why has that derby been left to school teachers or the madrasa teachers? Mm -hmm. um, and subhanAllah, when we look at the Anbiya alayhim salam, Yusuf alayhi salam, when he saw the dream, who did he go to first? He went to his father. Yeah. So that shows the relationship that the father had with his children. That's something that Yusuf was confused about. He approached his father first. And then his father advised him what to do. Mm. So in the same way that we need to develop these workshops and train parents on how to be good parents yeah. and how to do the tarbiyah, how to be approachable to their, to, their, to their children. And I think that's probably one of the things that is seriously lacking, um, definitely in the UK and you know, it seems that in Australia as well from what you've said, mm. that parents are leaving the tarbiyah to other people. Yeah. And therefore that bond is not being created between children and parents. So like the kid off to Madrasa, there's your that's, that's yeah. Yeah. So in the same way that, you know, oh, the child's not doing this, mm. um, child's not bring salah, uh, child's taking drugs, child's hang, hang around with the wrong um, in the wrong environment, or oh, I'm gonna get your teacher to address this. Why aren't the parents doing this? And sometimes it could be because they're unaware of how to approach this. Mm. And so probably those in workshops, inshallah, would really be useful for this. I think that'd be amazing, inshallah. You know, I mean, it seems to me, a lot of what I see um, is that the part of the sunnah that where, you know, what do they say? Love a child from zero to seven, raise them from seven to 14 and befriend them from 14 on, right? Is the last part of that seems, there seems to be a lot of struggle with parents transitioning from <coughs> the raising with the discipline into trying to establish a friendship. They yeah. don't seem to know how to do that. And especially with a lot of um, cultures, different cultures coming here and then their kids have grown up under a completely different culture that they can't connect to. They don't know how to be friends because they're from different worlds. Definitely. And, you know, I do get those phone calls where the mother or father will call up, please come talk to my son. And then it's out of love. They desperately want someone to end their here, fix him. Yeah. That would be amazing if we could do that with different things. If it worked that way, it would be fantastic. But it's not like taking a, a broken car to a mechanic exactly. or an auto electrician. Exactly. It's a human being that's complex. and Definitely. And it's a long-term relationship that has to be built. Mm. Because if the child's smoking, for example, or you know he's done something at school, and the imam or the school teacher or the principal of the madrasa or someone like yourself comes and addresses that, that's a temporary fix. Yeah. It's not going to address the root cause of any of this. Mm. And that's what you know parents really need to take on, addressing the root causes so that it doesn't happen again. Mm. Um, because like you said, it's a temporary fix, but it's not going to solve a long-term problem. That could happen again tomorrow. The imams can't come again tomorrow. No. You know, Robbie can't come again tomorrow. <laughs> you, and so it's the parents that really have to take on that responsibility. And it's a, it's a journey of life. It's the great adventure of exactly. life. Things take exactly. time. Often parents, you know, they find out oh, my kid's been drinking and hanging out with bad friends come and talk to them. It's, look, this is not something that is addressed in one conversation. Exactly. This is ongoing and I can't tell you anything or promise them anything that there's a way of making this just stop and that's what it is, you know. Um, Look, I mean, my life was all in Jahil, you know, the entire thing until I found Islam, alhamdulillah. I'm able to appreciate and 
hopefully and hang on to this as best I can because I want to. I've made that choice to. But I think from what I've seen a lot of the youth, they also, I mean, it's not for reverts to choose Islam. Every yeah. single Muslim has to decide to live this way. And part of making that decision seems to be sometimes they almost, I don't like to use the word need, but it seems like they need to, to stray a little bit to, to feel what it feels like to be without that for a second to truly appreciate what Definitely. it is in in the in some instances in some people's yeah, lives. Yeah. And um, if you recall the the, the brother the, the Bosnian brother, um, I, I didn't get his name yesterday. Beautiful brother. Um, but Subhanallah, his, his story was amazing, and that's one of the things that he said that because he was missing out on that contentment of the heart. Mm. When he found it, he realized that this is exactly what I was missing, mm. um, and that's just just exactly what you're saying. Also that. You know, sometimes people, yeah, not need to go astray, but once they do go astray and then come back, they realize that yes, this is a path that I need to leave, yeah. not the other one. But when you're the when you're the person supporting and loving someone, it's the most, it's, hard. it's the hardest thing in the world <coughs> to watch that happen 100%. because we we know, uh, you know, with people with life experience that not everyone gets an opportunity to come back. To come back so to this young person, it's like, listen, I'm just living my life, I'm doing my thing, relax. You know, I can't relax because if Allah takes your ruh. In the middle of all this, oh, I can't, I can't, you can't live. I have no peace. It's definitely, definitely. It's a very hard thing to watch. And to tell a parent, you know, this, you know, it might, this might go away in five weeks. It might get better. It might get worse. It might do this. It might be the next 10 years of this person's life. You know, mm. I, you just have to have sabr as best you can. And definitely, definitely. And it's about that partnership between the parents and the children, mm. the masajid, the overall community. And it's the importance of, you know, highlighting this within the community that these things do exist. They exist within the community and we need to address them. We need to help one another. The masajid, the madaris do need to take that role and that position mm -hmm. of somehow addressing the issues and supporting the efforts that are being done to address these issues also. So now uh, we'll use this to sort of get into uh, what you're doing more specifically in Leicester in, in the UK because you are a teacher, right? Yes. Um, and so how did you get into the teaching and first of all, what, what, how, how did you pick that path? Um, so when I, when I graduated from the Alimiya program in 2008 in Leicester, mm -hmm. um, my, my teachers again advised me to take on the teaching role within, um, within the same institute. Mm -hmm. And what I found that I enjoyed this quite a bit. Um, and as time went on, what I realized was the different challenges that children come with. And they come with from different backgrounds, different families. And teaching them Alif Ba Ta Tha or, you know, to the children or even Islamic law to the, uh, to the more senior students, it's not simply about teaching because there are so many factors which contribute to them what they go back with after the lesson. And subhanAllah, you know, you spoke about broken homes, children coming from broken homes. When they come in at five o'clock, there are so many things like, have they eaten or not? Wow. How they're yeah. dressed, um, how tired they are. And that really, you know, I think introduced me to this whole um, mental well-being that children are coming to madrasa, but not everyone is the same. We know academically not everyone is the same, their abilities, but not only that, they're family homes. And subhanAllah, my father, rahmatullahi alayhi, he'd always relate a story to us. Um, so when, when our class graduated, um, uh, some of the, my, my um, 
the students in the class, I asked with that, you know, could we go to your father for some advice because of his experience as an imam? So I said, definitely, inshallah. So we went and we saw after Aisha and, you know, mashallah, he gave some beautiful advice. And one of the things that always stuck with me was a story that he mentioned. And he was talking about the importance of dealing with children within the madrasa system with love and care and understanding that not all children come from the same background mm. and sometimes they come with health issues so he said that one of the days um, after madrasa had finished um, subhanallah my father you know he had such a quality that after madrasa would finished as after madrasa would finish he would not go home until the last student has gone home he would wait outside in the cold until the last student had gone home. And I remember, so, you know, um, we have the whole concept of safeguarding within the um, school system. Yeah. I remember when I was in primary school at that time, none of that existed. But my father, rahmatullahi alayhi, during that time, he would not go home until the last student had gone home. So there were two brothers um, in the madrasa. One brother was in his class and this younger brother was in another class. So most students had gone home and this brother was still there. So my father asked him that, um, why, where's your other brother? Why have you not gone home yet? So he said, oh, my brother's in hospital. I said, why is he in hospital? He said, oh, he has an operation because they've just found that he has a hole in his heart. Mm. And my father, and he said, subhanAllah, all this, he's been coming to madrasa every single day. We see him. Never did we ever think that there could be something wrong with the child medically. And teachers could end up shouting at the child. And this is what my father was trying to explain mm. to us, that if a child has not learned his lesson for the day, don't just say, oh, you've not learned the lesson. There could be factors contributing to his inability to learn that lesson. Now think about a child that's coming with a hole in his heart. You know, he may have breathing difficulties. He could have sleeping difficulties. He's coming to madrasa, and now the teacher's saying to him, you've not learned your lesson. This is your punishment. Or, he's, yeah, he's carrying around fear because he knows he's got to go back to the doctor for more tests and needles exactly. and things and like that. He can, the last thing he can do is concentrate on the exactly. what's in front of him. And so wow. that, that, that advice always stuck with me that, you know, understand that children may not know their lesson, not because they've not learned it, mm. but because of so many other reasons. Um, I remember a child in the, in the madrasa. Um, he was um, about seven years old. So he came to madrasa at five o'clock and um, he, about half an hour into the class he fell asleep. So I first said, okay, go have some water. So he went and had some water. About 10 minutes later, he fell asleep again. <laughs> so I said to him, okay, what do you do? Stand up for about four or five minutes so that, you know, you don't fall asleep. So I told him, it's not a punishment. I just want you to stand up so you feel a bit energetic. He said, okay, that's fine. Believe it or not, he fell asleep while standing. Wow. He that's fell asleep tired. while standing. Inshallah, that's tired. So I said to him, sit down and just go to sleep. So he slept for about half an hour. But again, you know, all of these incidents really highlighted to me that subhanallah children are coming to the madrasa from so many different backgrounds and they are bringing so much baggage with them mm. and it's not their fault it's not their fault so if we don't address them and in the way that they need to be addressed with love and with care and affection and understanding where they're coming from understand why they may be doing the things that they're doing we'll never be able to truly help them so it's, it's amazing advice and it's an amazing life lesson because everything you're saying about the kids is it's making me think of that I should be really having that thought about everyone that I deal with. 100%. People, because we're coming, from a, uh, coming into situations from a wounded place 
you know, from a place of stress and thing and, and, and whatever else is going on in our lives. And, and just on that note, um, Alhamdulillah, one of the um, you know, efforts that they've started back in Leicester about four or five years ago now um, is drug addiction. Great. Um, and again, because they realize that, you know, th- this is happening within the Muslim community and until we don't take an active role in addressing it, it's going to grow and grow. So, mashallah, some brothers got together and what they started doing is having direct meetings with, with these people. And again, based on an anonymous um, approach yeah. and making them feel comfortable that, look, inshallah, you can speak to me and, you know, nothing judgmental, very similar to the um, alcohol, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, alcohol anonymous yeah. pro- program that you're running here, mm-hmm. where people feel comfortable in talking about, you know, what's led them to this. And subhanAllah, although I'm not directly involved, but um, a lot of the ulama that I work with, they are involved in this. Mm-hmm. And what comes across repeatedly is the reason they got into drugs in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of it is to do with trauma, yeah. family trauma, family break breakups. Um, you know, there's been a sudden death in the family. Mm-hmm. People can't cope with this. Um, and subhanAllah, these are the reasons that people get into this. So again, you know the root cause I was talking about, that if we just try and address one person that's addicted to drugs, there could be another hundred people, if, unless we address the root cause. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, if there's a breakup in the family, if there's a sudden <coughs> death, you can't address that itself. But what we can do is have sessions for people that need counseling. Yeah. That if somebody's experienced you know, um, a sudden death in the family, that how can we address this? How can we give them counseling? How can we make them feel comfortable from an Islamic perspective? Because in the absence of that counseling, that's when they seek alternatives. And drugs, alcohol is then one of those alternatives. Reality is, Sheikh, people are really struggle with life. It's, it's <coughs> the, 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 the hardships and the heartaches that the heart endures. You know, for some people, you know, it's, it's really hard to express. And I think, you know, when we look at someone, like the brother said to us last night, you know, when you'd ask him how he is, happy face, I'm fine, alhamdulillah. But we don't know how deeply wounded people are Definitely. sometimes. And, you know, sometimes advice might, you know, like you said, the example of, oh, well, someone's gri- uh, passed away. Oh, okay, well, grieve, have sabr. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala advises us this. It's one thing to hear that. It's another thing to, my, I'm just not feeling that. Yeah. As much yeah. as, you know, my man, I'm not there or, or whatever it is, I, I'm just... I cannot get rid of this feeling, you know. Someone described depression to me as, you know, basically you just you, you lack the will to to exist, you, you know, to get up and, and go for a walk to feed yourself is just you just don't have the will to do it. You definitely, just definitely. you want to die. It's it's just a horrible reality to live in and to you know all the theoretical things you can put to that person in the world may not get rid of that feeling so it's being able to empathize and try and understand where everyone's yeah, at and, and work with that and and it's like you said about being open that you know if somebody is going through that difficult time being open that look number one there's it's it's not only you there are many other people that yeah. are experiencing this and therefore they feel a slight comfort comfort that okay you know there are other people that are experiencing the same thing yeah. second thing that don't expect this just to go away within one or two sessions. We can overcome this. It may not go away. It may take a few weeks, but inshallah, or a couple of months. And like I said, it may even take a couple of years. But there are strategies that we can put into place, inshallah, to overcome those feelings. Mm. And again, it's about that collaboration, working together, 
this is just the way this group, alhamdulillah, you know, in Leicester, they, they're working within the ulama. Now they've built relationships with um, professional counselors. Excellent. Um, so, you know, we spoke about counseling yesterday and the need for professional counseling. So, alhamdulillah, what, you know, what they started doing was they invited professional counselors um, who, you know, come three, four times a week, about four or five hours. And they, alhamdulillah, they trained in this. So they can give that professional counseling, that advice. And slowly what happens is other people want to start getting involved. Yeah. And alhamdulillah, it grows and grows and grows. And what other people, other families start realizing, okay, my son or my daughter, you know, is addicted to alcohol or drugs or experiencing this. Alhamdulillah, let's try and, you know, get them involved in this program. Yeah. And one of the things, subhanAllah, they've done is they've connected with a rehab center in South Africa. Ah. Yes, and what they do is that if after a couple of months they realize, okay, this, quite, this person is quite deep and, you know, these sessions are not helping, they actually get them sent to the rehab center in South Africa. Very good. Um, and if the family can pay for this, alhamdulillah, they, put, they pay for this. Otherwise, they try and get this funded by the local community. Fantastic. I've heard about some of these rehabs yes. in South Africa. And alhamdulillah, they get, they get sent there um, and they stay there for a few weeks. And alhamdulillah, it helps them. Yeah. And then they come back and mashallah, they share their experiences, just like what you're doing, you know, with different schools and different um, projects. And alhamdulillah, you know, it's, it's really helping the people there. Do they have any Muslim rehabs in the UK? Um, that I'm not aware of. Mm. Um, I, I believe there are, but um, I'm not sure if it's just like a like counselling or where it's actually... Actual inpatient where you can yeah, go and stay. Where people go away and stay for a few wow. weeks. We don't have one here. Yeah, I, I don't think there is one in, in the UK. Wow. Not a, mus- not a Muslim one anyway. Wow. That's, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? It is, it is. Um, and f- I mean, that change is coming. Mm. Um, but I think the reason is, you know, until now, um, these areas of counselling and ad- ad- drug addiction, alcohol addiction pornography addiction it's always been a taboo and there's always been this stigma that okay let's not discuss this Um, but alhamdulillah over the past you know five ten years that has changed and people are now realizing that no we can't just ignore the issue it's not going to go away it's it's not not getting better it's not going to go away and subhanallah it's only when you start speaking to the people involved in these projects you realize how deep you know, all of this actually exists within the community. Mm. And we're not even talking about people that live, you know, um, in areas where there aren't any massage and madaris. We're talking about within the heart of Leicester, you know, Highfields, uh, one of the areas is, you know, I don't know if you're about Lakemba in yeah. Sydney. It's okay. just like Lakemba. All right. If you think of Lakemba, that's how Highfields is. Cool. You've got right. massage in every single corner. Love it. But even within Highfields, subhanAllah, the drug addiction, the alcohol addiction, um, turning away from Islam, all of that anxiety, depression, within high fields, within high fields. Um, and subhanAllah, that, that's what these brothers and sisters, you know, in Leicester are try, really trying to um, address now, that it's, it's, we've now gone too far. It's, it's taken too long. Now we, have to, we just have to address the issues. What's the population like over, the Muslim population like over there? I, I saw something the other day on social media that said, uh, well, the m- number one boy's name in, the UK now is Muhammad. Yes. Which is yeah. great. Yes. Alhamdulillah. Um, so I imagine it's quite high. Yeah, we've got about 6 or 7% Muslims in, in the UK. Okay. Um, um, 
and in in some areas they're quite um it's quite a dense Muslim population mm. like Leicester's a very highly dense Muslim population mm. um we've got multiple we've got probably about um I'd say s- somewhere between seven to a hundred masajid or musallas um which is quite a bit um and Leicester's not one of the huge cities so Man- Manchester London these are the you know, really big cities. They've, they've got a greater Muslim population. Birmingham's another one of them. Yeah. Um, so Alhamdulillah, you know, these kind of projects and, you know, efforts are taking place in different cities simultaneously. Um, and I think, inshallah, give it maybe a year or two and hopefully there will be some collaboration between the different cities in, in this specific regard of drug addiction and alcohol addiction also. Coming from uh, or along with the um, issue of drug, drug addiction, all that sort of stuff, there's the business end of that, which leads to you know crime, the gangsters, and everything else. Um, obviously, that there's going to be, that's going to be a, if the drugs are being used there, that's going to be a problem. Our people seem to be the same as every other human yeah. being on the earth, and that they like to make easy money. Some of them, and they fall into this trap of being big shots and tough yeah. guys. Yeah. We're seeing now in Sydney, there's a lot of shootings going on back and forth. I'm not suggesting that these specific shootings at the moment are necessarily tied into anything to do with drugs and stuff, but um, it's a culture of violence um, that exists within um, within our community that a lot of youth look up to. They think there's something glorious mm. about it. Um, the nafs seems to find something, uh, a strong pull towards being somebody or the perception of being someone uh, ruthless or feared. Um, it feels like over here we're not even anywhere near even sort of having a conversation, some sort of uh, a beneficial conversation about how to begin tackling this other than working with individuals as they come through the correctional system uh, you know on a one-on-one basis to try and help people rebuild Mm. their lives but in terms of trying to steer people away or or confronting these this culture head-on um from the uh perspective of the we we don't really we're not really on the front foot with this um are you guys doing is in uk is anyone achieving anything with this sort of Again, thing? Again, um, it, it's happening on a very small scale. Um, so we've got small groups in different cities that, you know, um, again, people that probably have been through that life. Mm. Um, so not necessarily um, an Islamic group, but just a, a social group. Mm-hmm. Um, so working with the council, working with other um, organizations about knife crime. So we've got a knife. We don't really have gun issues in the UK because... Um, uh, civilians don't carry ga- guns. Okay. Yeah. So, alhamdulillah, w- w- the gun issue is, you know, very, very minimal. It's more knife crime that, you know, that's quite serious. Okay. Um, so, what we have is um, people visiting schools, um, secondary schools mainly, and what what they what they try and do is invite those people that have been through that life, hmm. and give their personal experiences about um, themselves, you know, their friends, um, things that they've witnessed and how it's not the path that needs to be taken. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really interests me is, um, reg- th- this is quite rife in London. Okay. In London. So we got a lot of documentaries coming out, um, again, you know, from people that have been through that life. And subhanAllah, one of the things that is mentioned repeatedly is about why they began this life. And one of the reasons is where young teenagers you know, they're 12, 13 years old. They've come from single parent families, usually staying with their mothers. Mm-hmm. And what they realize is my mother's struggling. We've got, you know, we've got nothing at home to eat. And they want to try and get in more money. 
So they see this as an easy way to, to money. So, <laughs> subhanAllah, it's like they're doing it for a right reason to help their mother at yeah. home. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the causes. Another thing, and you know, we, we spoke about this yesterday as well, how the education system, unfortunately, doesn't help. Because what happens within the educational system is you've got the, you know, mashallah, the very intelligent children mm. that, you know, just ex excel and, ex you know, they're successful in everything. But what about the average pupil? Um, they're not, you know, getting the awards at the end of the year. Um, you know, their pictures aren't being displayed in the school. And it's, it's as though they feel they want some sort of recognition. Yes. They want some sort of recognition. Mm -hmm. And what that leads to is if they're not the popular ones within their friend circle, they want to try and do something to become popular. Mm -hmm. And then they feel, okay, you know, if I start taking drugs, if I start maybe, um, you know, if I become friends with that person, he wants me to sell drugs. Now, that, that person's quite popular within the community. Um, he's quite, you know, everyone fears him. If I align myself with him, Maybe I'll get some sort of recognition. People sure. will start fearing me. And subhanAllah, that's, that's another reason all this begins. Yeah, it's a very good point. So the education system, unfortunately, itself is not helping this. Mm. Because the education system is geared towards those students that can excel in academia. Mm -hmm. That will help the capitalist economy. Yeah. The average pupil that doesn't excel in math, English and science... Well, there's not much recognition given to the students, and therefore they seek that attention um, from from other people. And it probably ties back into what we said earlier about parents, that if parents aren't giving them that recognition, mm -hmm. if parents aren't bonding with the children, whether, whether we accept this or not, the truth is that as human beings, you spoke about this yesterday, as human beings, we all need to be with one another. Mm. And... So whether it's a five-year-old, whether it's a 10-year-old, 20-year-old, or 50-year-old. So even that 15-year-old that boy that's just, or girl that's just finishing secondary school, if they're not getting that recognition, that inclusion that they need from home, from their friend circle, from the school system, they're going to try and address that gap and fill that gap through drugs, through addiction, through alcohol, and then taking that route of um, gangs. Because therefore, oh, there's an alignment here. I feel included. I, I've got something I'm part of. Feeling of belonging. Yeah, feeling it's of it's belonging. a very strong drive. And subhanAllah, that's what leads a lot of people to this gang warfare, mm. and which ultimately leads to crime. Mm. So for me, one of the, th I mean, it, it's, for me, it's always looking at the root cause. How can we address the root cause? And inshallah, if we address this, then inshallah, we will see a decrease you know, in, in, in all of these things. Mm, yeah, inshallah. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's a big problem. And as you say, yeah, getting to the root cause and, and addressing the parenting, you know. Um, there was a program that I came across here uh, called uh, the Fathering, Fathering Project. And uh, it was a program that uh, was come up with. There was, there was a doctor, an oncologist, cancer specialist, in Western Australia, he was basically giving men death sentences every day of the week. That was his job. You know, you've got six months to live. And the primary regret expressed by men that he was meeting was that, you know, I haven't spent enough time with my kids, with my family. 
Um, and he decided to do something with that. And they did university studies and, and all sorts of things and came up with this thing, the fathering uh, project. And uh, it was it's a school-based program that helps dads connect with their kids, teaching them simple things like when you come home from work, um, you leave your phone in the car or leave your phone off. The first 20 or 25 minutes that you're home, you do nothing other than play with the kids. You give them your absolute undivided attention. You make that a beautiful experience. And just the studies from families implementing that and that alone with nothing else, the kids' marks at school went up, everything went up, their performance at basically life was just better because they felt loved and, you know, so these little things. But I think one of the struggles and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, like the sort of um, comes into biases and, and things um, uh, that we've got from different cultures when it comes to not wanting to accept drug issues and stuff yeah. like that, as well as trying to tell or you know, have a conversation with the father who's you know, um, 45, 50 years old that maybe he could be doing things in a different or better way. Yeah. That's a tough pill for a lot it of is. men to swallow. It You've is. got to swallow your ego and possibly yeah, put your hand up to the fact that I may have been doing things the wrong way and, and a lot of these dramas that are happening in my family are, um, I'm are my cool. fault. Um, it's a very hard thing to it get is. some into that, it especially f- from coming from a lot of the cultures that our yeah, yeah. our brothers and sisters it's come true. from. It's true. And, you know, this is something which um, we really need to highlight to parents as well, that number one, that there'll be a workshops, and then if that, in the absence of that, when something does happen with the children that look for the betterment of the child, let go of your ego. Mm. Let go of your ego. And, you know, subhanAllah, one of the things that, you know, we can explain is fine, you know, they may be uh, addicted to alcohol. But, inshallah, if we address the issue, they can become the beloved of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And drinking alcohol itself, as, you know, as, as wrong as it is, doesn't mean that they're not Muslim. We can still address the issue. And subhanAllah, a beautiful hadith um, where there was a person in, in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And he was one of those individuals. He was like the comedian within the Sahaba. And he would make everyone laugh and he would even make the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam laugh. Um, and people who had nicknamed, nicknamed him Himar, which is a, a donkey because of, because of this. Um, and subhanAllah, some of the things that he'd do is that, um, you know, people would come and sell vegetables and fruits. Um, so he would go and buy something, and he'd tell the Prophet ﷺ that, is there something I'd, uh, I'd like to buy for you? He said, no problem, you know, buy that. So he'd go and buy it, and then he'd tell the seller, oh, I bought it for the Prophet ﷺ, go and take the money from him. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so this person, this Sahabi, عنه, he was actually addicted to alcohol. And he would be punished. And one of the times he was being punished, um, it was it was it was happening in the public, and one of the Sahaba radiAllahu commented that look at this person, he's been punished for this repeatedly, and he still doesn't desist. You know what's wrong with him? Mm. So the Prophet said, "Don't say that, because I know that he loves Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alaihi wasallam." So despite being addicted to alcohol, the Prophet is giving testimony that I know he loves Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that's probably a lesson that we need to take that, you know, somebody that's addicted to alcohol or drugs does not mean that, you know, they're out of the fold of Islam. This is just a sin that they're engaged in. They still probably love Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And just like we, we all commit sins, 
I have my sins that I'm committing, other people have sins that they're committing, this person is committing the sin of drinking alcohol. We can't look down on these people or you know, see them in a different light. They are still Muslims and they still love Allah and And Allah still loves them. And that's the approach that you know, we should be taking with these people and how we can help them to overcome this, this difficulty and inshallah, you know, build that connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also. Because we love to judge people f that seem differently to us. Definitely. I mean, it's, oh, well, your sin to us and mine, is it? I mean, mm, who's the, you know, really, let's have a look at it. Maybe it's not, you know, maybe their sin is more open or maybe my sin is more open than yours or more apparent, should say. But um, as you say, it's, um, it's ev yeah, everyone's carrying something. And it was a beautiful saying that I, I read once that we always look at other people's actions and our intentions. Mm. That I may have done something wrong. Yes, I've done something wrong, but I did it for the right reason. Yeah. With other people, we never look at their intentions. We only look at their actions. That regardless of the intention that did this, we did it wrong. So again, it's all about be becoming judgmental. And subhanAllah, you know, this is what um, we advised um, against in the Quran. That abstain from assumptions. Mm. Don't look at somebody and assume that they've done something wrong. And subhanAllah, you know, when we look at the, um, the lives of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, pre-Islam and post-Islam. And yesterday I was mentioning about, you know, pre-Islam, so many of the Sahaba did those crimes which very few Muslims have ever committed. Yeah. And yet, when they did tawbah and they accepted Islam, look where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took them. And even post-Islam, we have incidents where the Sahaba radiallahu committed certain um, crimes. And that was for the lessons of the Ummah. So that we have a practical example of if this happens, how did the Prophet deal with this? Yeah. But the point is that they did tawbah after that. And that's what we really need to work on within our community. That if somebody is addicted to drugs or alcohol, how can we get them to move away from this and do tawbah? Yeah. Not that, okay, this person is like a goner now. That, that, you know, there's no hope left in this person. Mm. That, that's an approach that we cannot take. And you know, that's what Yaqub um, said to his children. That, لا الله, that don't, don't become despondent from the mercy of Allah. It is only the disbelievers who lose hope in the mercy of Allah. Mm. And again, you know, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran Ya ibadi alladhin asrafu ala anfusihim O my servants who have exceeded all bounds in committing sin La taqnatu min rahmatillah Do not despair from the mercy of Allah So there is no sin that Allah will not forgive Even disbelief Allah will forgive within the dunya Yeah. And you know probably this is something that we really need to bring out in the community as well that these people are, you know, are addicted to drugs or alcohol. It's just a sin that they're committing. How, how can we help them from removing this sin from their life? And to build a bridge back into community, exactly. into, into a exactly. feeling and create exactly. a feeling of belonging within we our community. We are still our brothers and sisters. Yeah. Nothing has changed. They still believe in Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And therefore we have a duty to help them. Mm. Just like if a person is not giving zakat, why, why are we seeing these two people different? A person not going for hajj or zakat and a person drinking alcohol or a person not praying salah. They are all committing a sin. That's yeah. what they're doing. They are still Muslims. We still include these 
this group as our brothers and sisters and we will be willing to help them in the same way that these people who are addicted to these drugs and alcohol, they are still our brothers and sisters. What are we going to do to help them mm. and overcome uh, these issues? Allah barik feek. Sheikh Ibrahim, listen, Jazakallah Khair. Thank you very much for coming. We've um, we've come to the end of the program. It's really been insightful uh, having a conversation with you. Wayakum. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and give you safe travels and, and uh, bless you in the work that you're doing over in Leicester and expand your horizons. Whoever is most pleasing to him. And the brothers here at Academy Live, I want to say Jazakallah Khair to Imam Mikram also for the invite um, to yourself as well. Alhamdulillah, I've, I've learned a lot also about you know the, the kind of things that you're doing here and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant you all success, grant you all ikhlas and everything Ameen. that's being done and Allah make all of your efforts fruitful for not only people here in Brisbane but Allah make it fruitful for in the entire world Ameen, Ameen Ameen. thank you very much Ameen. and everyone that's joining us at, uh, from home Jazakallah khair, we'll see you next time Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah Jazakallah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah Alaikum wa rahmatullah Thank you.